title of my sermon this morning is The Baptism of Jesus. We are going to talk about the physical baptism of Jesus, but that's not really the baptism we are, I am focusing on this morning, as you're going to find out. Nonetheless, you know, a baptism is a big step in the life of any Christian, right? I mean, every one of us have memories of being baptized. I've baptized a handful of you. The rest of you remember being baptized. I remember being baptized by my pastor in Connecticut when I was 12 years old, something like that. For most of us, this event goes pretty smoothly. But that's unfortunately not the case for everybody, so check out this video. Oh, I guess I'm working if it was on. Stop baptizing my morning we're going to talk about that, the baptism of Jesus, which was presented to us by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and thank you for all that you've done. Bless us now as we enter your word and allow each and every one of us, including myself, to partake of your word today in your name. Amen. Let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 15. I'm going to read through the entire text, kind of preach through it as I like to call it. So I'm going to go verse by verse. And then after that, I'm going to make two very simple points. And I only have six pages of notes, so this might be done early. And I've been joking all, that, all evening, all morning, whatever it is. That clock is about five minutes fast, so you might get lucky. You know, I, I mean, if I'm going by that one, we might be done five minutes early today. We'll find out. Though. So Luke chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 15. So look at verse 15 with me. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ. And we're going to pause there. So, last week we finished up, or a couple weeks ago, we really just finished up the Christmas season, right? And I don't know about you, but, you know, I get excited about Christmas. You know, you get excited, the anticipation. The same thing was the case with the Jewish people. They were at, it was at a time in history where the people of, G, the people of Israel, the people of God, were on fire and waiting for the Messiah. They were excited. They had a, an intense expectation waiting for the Lord to come. Luke tells us that they were in a state of expectation and all were wondering if, in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. 
A state of expectation means, of course, to expect, but it also has the literal meaning of to look for or to wait for. They were waiting for or looking for the Messiah. The people of Israel were looking for the Messiah, and they thought that John might be him. Last week we studied the message of John the Baptist, and the calling upon John's life was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was by no means the Messiah. In verses 16 and 17, John's going to explain the differences between himself and this coming Messiah. So look at verse 16 with me. So he talks about the expectation, they're looking for him, and then John says this, John answered them. He answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins was only a water baptism. It was only symbolic. Nothing about John's baptism saved anybody. The people needed something much bigger. And of course, that's what we're kind of getting at today with Jesus' baptism. The Greek word used here for mightier is an adjective that is describing the word one. You know, it's describing the one to come. It means strong or mighty. This clearly is a reference to Jesus' physical abilities, because again, he is God. He's able to walk on water. He's able to do all sorts of mighty physical things. But of course, I don't necessarily know if that's exactly what this is in reference to. I think it's really talking about his spiritual abilities. His spiritual ability to overcome sin, the sins of the world for our, uh, for, for our own selves. It is Jesus' spiritual might that puts him above all created things, including the devil. John tells the people that he is much inferior to the coming Messiah. That he is not even, he's so much inferior to the coming Messiah that he's not even able to untie the Messiah's shoelace. Now this is a very significant thing. In, in the time of Jesus, there were obviously, slavery was, was something that was taking place, and there were Jewish slaves as well. But the task of untying a shoe, or untying the sandal, was so demeaning that the Jewish people didn't even have to do it. It was just something that they were just not expected to do because of the law, because of different things. Yet John is saying that he's not even worthy to do that. So John is putting himself very low on, on the level of, of a humility, if you want to call it that, compared to the Messiah, which of course is what we should do as well. Um, we also know that John clothed himself in camel hair and ate locusts and wild honey. So um, he, he put himself much lower than your average human being, making sure that no one could have ever thought he was the Messiah. He, you couldn't compare John to the Messiah from John the Baptist's perspective. Finally, John, uh, he makes the statement that I want to focus on this morning. John tells us that the baptism of Jesus will be one of the Holy Spirit and fire. And we're going to focus on this in a few moments. Let's look at verse 17 now. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now this verse ties in greatly with verse 16, so we're not going to get too much into it. We're going to focus on this in a moment. It ties in greatly with the baptism of Jesus of the Holy Spirit and fire. But I still want to give you something of, I want to help you understand the illustration. So this is, from what I understand, this is a winnowing fork. It's essentially that, that thing in the shed that you know, we never use. Because honestly, I have no need for this thing. But, you know, if you ever see the picture of the dude, the farmer and his wife, he's holding this thing. Because he would use this to go, and here's a picture of the guy using it, 
Um, you, you would go into the, the hay or the, the grain, the material that they grow in the field, and they'd thrust it up into the air, and in the process of doing that, the wind would blow away the light stuff, the chaff or the straw, the junk that they don't need, it would be blown away, and the grain would fall. And of course, the grain would be taken and turned into flour, turned into cookable materials. The other stuff would just be blown away. But they would collect that stuff because there was not a lot that they could, they could burn then. They would have to get a lot, they have to burn whatever they could, so they collect it, they'd wrap it up into burnable little, uh, uh, like little compressed little uh, things of straw and thrust them into the fireplace. And in, in so doing, they would burn and cook with this stuff. They would burn the chaff, they would keep the grain. The illustration, as we're going to find out, so giving you a bit of a heads up, it's very clear that this is talking about those who are doing good, and to be very specific, those who follow Jesus, and those who are doing bad, those who do not follow Jesus. The grain represents followers of Jesus, the chaff or the other stuff, the stuff that's burned, represents those who are not following Jesus. Now look at verse 18 and 20. 18 to 20. And this is uh, just a summarization of, uh, of the events that Luke tends to do this. He summarizes things. Uh, verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel. John the Baptist preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So remember, Herod Antipas, I talked about him a little bit last week. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, the guy who had all the infant children in Bethlehem killed in search for the Messiah. Herod Antipas, had, had, you know, he essentially stole his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And he's in a relationship with her that was clearly a sinful one. John, being John, decided to open his mouth. And, and remember that brood of vipers comment from last week. John didn't think twice about saying how it was. So John went and he told everyone how it was. He made it a point to call out Herod Antipas. Herod didn't like this. Eventually Herod had him arrested. And of course we know that Herod also had him beheaded eventually as well. Now look at verse 21 and 22 now. As we finish my text for this week. And this is the actual baptism of Jesus. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Luke's account of Jesus' baptism is, is very much a summarization. It's not as advanced as Matthew, which Matthew records the entire baptism, and, and, as well as a lot of other contextual information. Um, John actually does not record any of the baptism for whatever purpose. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Christ in the voice from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So, that interesting stuff. So, this morning I want to focus on the baptism of Jesus. And take a look at the two parts of it that John the Baptist pointed out. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism of fire. And now here's an interesting fact, just because I like to give you interesting facts. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus ever baptized anybody. If anything, if you look at John chapter 4, we hear that Jesus and his disciples departed because of the, uh, the pressure of the Pharisees. And, and it literally says that the disciples were baptizing people, but Jesus himself didn't baptize anybody. Now that could be wrong, that just could be something we don't have in the Bible, but the Bible does not say Jesus ever physically baptized anybody. Also, and there, this is kind of an important point as well, Christian baptism is not the baptism we're talking about today. They're similar, 
There's some similarities, but if we're going to really break it down, the baptism we're talking about today is not a physical baptism, the way that, you know, when you get dunked into water and pulled out again. Christian baptism is a public declaration of our faith in Christ. It is a reenactment of the Christian dying in Christ, being buried with Christ in death, and then rising with Christ to eternal life in heaven. It is also the reenactment, a part of what we're going to talk about today, the spiritual act of the Holy Spirit baptizing an individual, again, spiritual element. I would say that the baptism of Jesus we're going to talk about today is a spiritual thing where the baptism that we partook in as Christians is a, a symbolic thing, in a similar sense that the, the communion, the Lord's Supper, is a symbolic act. So, according to John, the baptism of Jesus is twofold. Number one, baptism by the Holy Spirit, baptism by the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, fifty days after he rose from the grave, the Holy Spirit came down upon the early Christians. From that point on, the Spirit was either given to a Christian by another Christian, or the way it is taking place today, naturally comes upon a Christian when they are saved. When you accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the Holy Spirit came upon you. Baptism is actually the baptism of the Holy Spirit. is one of four works that the Holy Spirit does upon the moment of a Christian's salvation. I mentioned this on, uh, on Wednesday night, so some of you might have heard this already. But if you remember the word ribs, ribs, I like ribs. So here we go, ribs. Four works that the Holy Spirit does. First of all, the Holy Spirit regenerates a Christian. Regeneration. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 7 when Paul talks, he's, um, he's wrote a letter to Titus, who was in Crete, another young minister. He says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hatred, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on a basis of our de of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, and here's the key part, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our sinful selves needed help. Jesus' death was great, but if there wasn't a supernatural thing that took place, what good would his death have been? Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and in the process sent the Holy Spirit upon the earth to regenerate us, to make us new. You are made new in Christ. You can make a list of all the bad things you've ever done and then just throw that list away. Because the Holy Spirit has made you a new creature. You are completely new. Your old sinful self has been done away with. You are now holy, righteous, and perfected in Jesus. On your own, you can never be holy or righteous. But through Jesus and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming down upon us, we can be righteous. So R is um, for regeneration. The next one is indwelling. I, so again, ribs. Indwelling. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 to 20. Um, Paul talks about sexual immorality. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. And then here, verse 19 and 20 are the keys. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. Kind of a reality check right there. Can you imagine? The, you know, God the Spirit lives inside you. You know, it's not just about, oh, it's you paying attention. You can't go hide in a room by yourself somewhere and think that God's not watching you because God is inside of you. So every sinful act we commit as a Christian, we're committing with the Holy Spirit. That's the significance of this verse. Number three here, I guess, the third letter in ribs, of course, is baptism. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, verse 13 is the key. For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Christians are united in the body of Christ. We are made into one group of people. It don't matter what you look like or who you are, what you sound like. We are one church. Church with a chapel. I can't speak. Church with a capital C. The universal church. All of Christianity. We are put into one group because of the baptism of Jesus. We are also washed clean by the blood of Jesus, which I think ties into this um, equally. So, um, regeneration, indwelling, baptism. Now, the S, sealing. Sealing. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 to 22. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, meaning Paul, and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You were sealed by God. And to me this is just so important. This is so, such a significant theological thing. It's so easy to get caught up in the idea that we, every time we make a mistake, we're in trouble. I mean, every time I made a mistake, if every time I made a mistake, my parents were mad at me, and my parents just gave up on me and thrust me out, what good would those parents be? What good would it be if God just said, oh, every time you sin, you need to start at square one? But that's not what He does, because He loves us. He promised us. His promise in Jesus dying on the cross is great. The sealing that we have, we've been sealed in our faith in Christ. And the pledge, the proof of that seal, the, the, the wax that made up that seal is the Holy Spirit that is within us. So Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is what makes a Christian a Christian. It what makes us saved. I mean, again, the, the, the how do you say it? The act of Jesus dying was, was important and needed to happen. But we would not have been able to make ourselves sinless, make ourselves holy, without the Holy Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit within a Christian is what makes us holy. The sad truth, though, is so many people reject this. So many people reject the, the, the truth of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and the truth of the Holy Spirit within us, which really brings me to the second part of this baptism. Baptism by fire. Now, there is some question about the interpretation of this. And the question really comes from this perspective. Is it a positive baptism by fire or a negative baptism by fire? Is it good or bad? 
So, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the people on the day of Pentecost, that's what Luke said. I'm going to read it right from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, meaning the remaining disciples and a whole bunch of other people as well. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as well, or as the whole, as the Spirit was given them utterance. So, is this reference the baptism of fire? Is this essentially the fulfillment of what John the Baptist says? Here's my issue, though. Here's my issue with that thought. If you look at verse 17 in your text, I just can't say that verse 17 is saying that baptism by fire is a good thing. I mean, look at it again. Let's read it again. Um, verse 17, Luke chapter 3. His, meaning Jesus' winnowing fork, is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and, his, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Of course, like I said, the grain or wheat represents Christians, whom Christ gathers to himself, the chaff represents those who reject Christ, those who are not following Jesus, those who are saying, I don't want Jesus. And unfortunately, those are taken and burned. Just like the chaff is gathered up and burned, so will those who do not know Christ. There is only one option. And there's, that's really the truth. There's only one option for these people, and that's fire and hell. And it's very blunt, very true. It's just there's no other way around it. And this is made even more clear uh, by understanding this unquenchable fire. Uh, unquenchable fire just paints a very, very horrible picture of hell. To, quen to quench something means to satisfy it. If I'm thirsty, I'm quenched, I need something to drink, I get satisfied when I'm quenched. Thus, something that is unquenchable means something that is not satisfied. Really, another way of looking at this, and I thought of this this morning, means something that is unquenchable is something that is unable to be satisfied. It is not possible to satisfy the unquenchable fire. The fires of hell will not burn up those who find themselves there because of the rejection of Christ. The fires of hell will not mercifully burn up those cast into them, but will continue to burn them for eternity. And it's a very powerful, horrible thought. And it should be. That's, my, that's the point of me telling you this. I mean... It's not something that we should hope for. It's not something we should hope on our enemies. Now, I think it's also important to point out that this is not what God wants. God clearly does not want this. God's grace is not limited to a select group of people. God does not condemn anybody. He wants everyone to come to Him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. That's not His desire. Unfortunately, the natural consequence of rejecting Jesus is hell. That's just it. It's, it's just common sense to, to some level. That's the point of it all. God wants all humanity to turn their lives over to Him, but the reality is many refuse to do so. Many choose the wrong way. Many choose the wrong road to Jesus John chapter 14, verse 1 to 6, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled, or heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If, you, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are many different roads that lead away from Christ. That's just the reality of there's only one way to Jesus. And it's so easy for people to just turn and run away and go the other direction. A life separated from Christ on this earth will inevitably lead to a spiritual separation from Him in hell. That's it. There's no beating around the bush. There's no other way to look at it. While He does not want any member of humanity to go to hell, the natural consequences of someone rejecting Jesus is, is, is going to hell. That's just how simple this is. Now, let me close up with that thought as well. Because I would say for me that the, the greatest application that we can take out of this is an urgency. I mean, there, like, like the song we, we heard earlier during the offering, you know, we sometimes say, oh, someone needs to do something about this. Someone needs to do something about those who do not know Christ. And guess what? God did send you. He sent each and every one of us. We all have our own little groups of people that we interact with, that we love and we care about. What are you going to do about them? The unquenchable fire of hell is waiting for those that do not know Jesus. Bottom line. Eternal damnation in hell is waiting for the people we love and care about who do not have Jesus as the Lord and Savior. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's it. Who among your loved ones does not have a relationship with Christ? Who among those you care about do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior? And it's a very simple application today. Tell them about Him. You do it. Because no one else is gonna. You can't rely on anybody else. right? What do they say? If you want something done, do it yourself. That's very much the true truth here. Don't expect someone else to tell them about Jesus. You go do it themselves, yourself. Now, maybe you fall under this category, and, that's, and this is really important to point out as well. Maybe there is someone here today, or someone listening or whatever, that does not have a relationship with Christ. And maybe this is information you can pass on to someone that you don't think has a relationship with Christ. The reality is it is not too late. They might be walking down the wrong path. We can go and turn them in the right direction. Point them towards Jesus. But, of course, the truth is you're not gonna, you can't save them. That's important to remember. You cannot save them. But you can direct them towards the one who can. And that, of course, is Christ. Turn your life over to Him today. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every last one of us, no matter how holy we look on this earth, we are sinful. If you're not God, you've sinned. That's how simple this is. And then Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, begins, the wages of sin is death, meaning the payment that needs to be made for the sins you committed is a death. You can try it on your own, and I'm telling you now, it's just not possible. You will not save yourselves. No matter how hard you try, the Jewish people tried it. They tried to save themselves through the sacrificial the system of sacrifices, and it failed. It did not work. All it did was prove that they needed a Savior. But Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. It begins for the wages of sin is death. But it ends, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants to give you a gift. He wants to give your loved ones a gift. He wants to give those you love and care about a gift. He wants to give everyone in this world a gift. All you have to do is receive it. All you have to do is accept it. We're going to watch the Super Bowl next week, and I'm 
my hope is that Tom Brady has a hard time throwing receptions. You know, I'm hoping his receivers don't catch the ball. But of course, they, you know, you got that Rob Gronkowski guy who's like the size of an oak tree. I mean, he's probably going to catch the ball. He's going to receive it. The same is true with Christ. If we don't grab on to things, if we don't grab on to salvation, then it's no good. You can preach. I can preach at you all day long. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's meaningless. It's just words. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, not before we ever sinned. I mean, He did die for us before we sinned, but we were sinful because of Adam. So our sins were there. It isn't like we had to somehow be born sinless. And this is not saying that after, you don't have to stop sinning in order to, to achieve salvation. He died for you, in the midst of your sinful condition, in the midst of your worst of the worst possible situation you can be in, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's how awesome God is. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, tell us how. How do we achieve this? Paul tells the church in Rome that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And verse 10 explains this. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I say this over and over and over again, and I say it for a reason. If you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, and rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die, and confess that belief outwardly, meaning tell other people about it, make everyone in the world know that you believe in Jesus based on your words and your actions, if you do that, you will be saved. Bottom line. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. That's it. And again, the reality is, there are people in our town, there are people in our families, there are people in our state that do not know Jesus. What are we going to do about it? And it starts with you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you for today. I ask that you bless us. I ask that you allow us to, to truly focus on you and how amazing your grace is. Allow us to recognize that Jesus is an awesome Savior who did the most amazing thing that could ever possibly happen. He died for our sins on the cross so that we can go to heaven when we die. Bottom line, He made the atoning sacrifice, that He paid the payment that we needed, Lord. We couldn't do it on our own. And you know what? Your God, you didn't have to save us. You chose to save us. We thank you, Father. I ask that you give us boldness, Lord. Allow us not to be ashamed of your gospel. Allow us to go forth and tell it to whoever we come across. We praise you, Father. We thank you in your wonderful name. Amen.